Namaskar. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored and delighted to uh, be here. I've heard a lot of good things about the university and many of the great persons uh, who I have a lot of respect for, who Muthi Ji and many others, many other things on a regular basis. And I've always wanted to come, just that my India trips tend to be, I come four times a year to, uh, to India. I've uh, lived in the US for 44 years, but I never missed a year when I didn't come. And uh, this trip can be very quick here there. Uh, and I finally uh, here, which is very wonderful, really like it. And I think uh, I now realize I should probably come for more than just a quick trip, spend you know, a couple of days, at least two, three days, and see the area, spend more time, which is what I would like to do maybe next time. I, I, uh, I'm particularly happy that uh, this is a technology group, science, technology, business, law kind of group, and also at the same time interested in the humanities and subjects of this kind, subjects about our heritage. Because what many of my talks and many of the events I've done in a very sort of technocrat type universities. I tend to find that they are deprived of the knowledge of culture, our, our history, our civilization, so they end up being very narrow, narrowly, too narrowly focused in job kind of quest. And the creative mind does not benefit from what our civilization has to offer. On the other hand, I find that a lot of people who are from the arts, what we call arts in India, humanities and social sciences, tend to be very uh, biased and almost uh, brainwashed and very difficult to discuss something with them that they can receive with open mind because they just memorize what the conclusions are which their faculty have taught them and very difficult to make a meaning. So uh, I think scientific people, and I have a technical background myself, scientific people are more by uh, the type of people like interact with. Because when you give them evidence and logic, they can relate to it. So I'm very happy to be here with that people. I will uh, like to have an extensive amount of time for question answers, interaction with the people. So I'm going to start by making a few comments and uh, then we uh, have some QA. Yeah? So one of the types of thinking our people did times was to constantly debate with others and nobody was the great thinkers of our time you know we know Adi Shankara, Ramanuja, all kinds of great thinkers that I could name you know, them. They were not just working in isolation but also engaging others, engaging opponents. So the idea of Purvapaksha is very important. Purupaksha means that you study the other side. You study them honestly in a fair way. You try to understand them exactly like they understand themselves. And then you give it Uttarpaksha, which is your response. Unfortunately, the tradition of Purupaksha was not applied when foreign invaders came. We just didn't do Purupaksha. So even today, even today, 
uh, you know, our traditional scholars haven't done too much of the question. They either oversimplified or they dismiss it as unworthy of Kuruba function, which is a very arrogant attitude. Or they have a very sort of a simplified view. You know? Uh, so none of that is acceptable. You have to go point by point, detail, reading, analysis of what other people are saying, what their thoughts are. That is the Kuruba function you have to do. So this is something I'm, I'm trying to do. And uh, I'm trying to kindle this interest in, in our people. So we understand how other civilizations are on our terms, how they see us, what is our response to them, how they see themselves, what is our response to that. So we have to we have to control the discourse on our terms rather than just being the object of studying them. Others are interested in studying on their own terms. So that's very important. Now, if you look at the history of Indology, start European Indology, become very prominent in the late 1700s and all through the 1800s. The study of Sanskrit becomes extremely deep in Europe. It's a sort of two or three goals in that. One is they discovered that Sanskrit is close to many European languages. So they try to look in Sanskrit for their own past. They try to then claim that it's their language and the Aryans brought it to India. Because that way they can take all the good old Sanskrit texts and claim it as their heritage. That they have gifted us somehow. And the uh, another objective of Indology was to understand the subjects of the empire, people who are being ruled by the empire, by understanding us better, they can rule us better. They can manipulate us, they can control us, they can divide and rule, they can, they can figure out who will fight against whom, how to create factions and fragments. So there was a usefulness in that way. And yet another use of technology was to my knowledge is taken use for their own benefit. A lot of scientific knowledge, a lot of knowledge of uh, linguistics, a lot of knowledge, uh, just knowledge in general, philosophy, psychology, this kind of piece, a lot of knowledge uh, was taken based on the ideological studies. So I'm doing many books on these topics. Now, Oxford was one of the centers of ideology, and at one time the East India Company had about, about 20 colleges scattered across England on ideology, uh, study of India, 20. So imagine how much they are studying us. Meanwhile, they eliminated or downsized the study of India within India itself. So the control of India study moved out of India to Britain, Germany, these places. Many of the old texts were taken. And even today, we have not brought them back. Some of the earliest texts, Vedic texts, Ayurvedic texts, mathematics texts of India, are not in India. We are in museums and archives in the Western world. I have seen some of them. And it's the same sad thing that nobody here has bothered to even make a case out of it. They want that they should come back. In fact, they are so arrogant, they will tell you that they are doing you a favor with being after it. We are keeping it under, we are looking after it for you. You should be grateful to us. So, then after the Second World War, 
when the British Empire collapsed, U.S. became the leading Western uh, nation, and the, what used to be called Indology in Europe got renamed South Asia Studies, and U.S. government supported it. And many universities started South Asia Studies, and it became kind of the successor of Indology. So Oxford was relocated to the uh, you know American prestigious university IBG and so on as Oriental Studies or South Asian Studies or something like that. And you find a mixture of people, like in the old ideology you find in the new South Asian Studies, you find a mixture of people, those who have a very romantic idea of India, those who have a, a kind of talking down, talking down at India, most of them mix up the both. Most of them are a little bit of both. They, they like certain things, they hate certain things, in front of you, they can really make you so happy. You give them a standing ovation because they will chant Sanskrit slokas and tell you great things and you're so proud and you're very grateful. And then they go on a flight back and talk to a different audience in a very different way. So this double-facedness, double-faced ambiguity is very much part of the Western mythology. So you find the same Max Miller who says great things about India also proposes the Aryan theory also says that, uh, you know, that the Sanskrit came from a foreign island, it was in the Indian origin, and then he promotes that, uh, uh, that uh, Christianizing these people uh, would be the strategy. So, you know, you can't, unless you put good pool of you're being misled. You can't just read what they have written in a press release. You have to go and read what they've written, and this means comes the page you have to read very carefully. That hard work our people are doing. So we are being often misled, and I talk to you about this thing in a moment. Now, my topic today is on the Americanization of the systems. You might wonder what does that mean? What do you mean by Americanization of the systems? Well, what is happening is that some of the most uh, aggressive and most voluminous uh, uh, prolific writings on Sanskrit literature, interpretation of Sanskrit thought is coming out of US. It used to come out of Germany, it used to come out of Britain, France, it's now coming a lot out of US. Just like those European countries had their own agenda and their own ideas mixed, with, mixed into it, so do the Americans. And uh, my talk focuses on one person, his name is Sheldon Pollock. He is in Columbia University. He used to be at University of Chicago. And I think I call him the new Max Miller. He's sort of the 21st century Max Miller, the reincarnation of Max Miller. Uh, he's produced a lot of works. He has produced a large number of PhDs in Sanskrit. His influence is huge. And what makes him particularly important is that within India, he's got a huge follower of Indians. Indians who are his students and now sent back to teach Sanskrit or become journalists or like become intellectuals. And his influence is beyond just his students. He's collaborated with a lot of uh, very extreme leftist Indians. So he's very leftist himself. And he's collaborated with those kind of people. Because the Indian left, one thing they lack 
in his knowledge of such things. So if you talk to Ramana Thakur or Ifan Deep or any of the leftist people, or Ramachandra Guha or any of them, uh, the one thing you can always tell them is how can you know all these things that are going to with your knowledge of India and Indian civilization is through Western interpretation, so you are not thinking and they have no answer. So what General Pollock has done is still that action. So he joined the team and saying, okay, I will Sanskrit, I'll be part of this team. I'll supply you all, this, all the materials that the left needs. This kind of a, a very important part of the Indian left. And the Indian left therefore supports him in a very serious way. Uh, he's extremely well known and many prominent leading Sanskrit scholars have been given grants by him, taken to the US on prestigious tours and visiting professorships and so on. This is a very tightly knit community with somebody sitting in the US at the top and a whole parampara of followers across the country. So he got a policy from the UPA government. Uh, he has uh, been named Friend of India Award he got from leading Indian newspaper in the US. All because of, uh, he, can, he can say great things. But none of them really read his books. So I, I read his books. And the reason uh, I'm, I'm now, my next book is a study of the Americanization of Sussex studies, the critique of that field, of how Americanization of Sussex studies is going on, how it affects us, and how this Americanized idea of Sussex and Sussex is what is being exported to India through the Parampara. Through the parampara. So, one function of the Parampara in India is they do not they supply a lot of data to fit the ideas. So his books are full of art of data, it's very impressive because he's got people feeding all these things. But then he picks a few this and makes them fit in a way that, fit, that suits his thesis. And then the other purpose of the Parampara is that once he's created his thesis, they marketing, distributed, dispensed. A lot of ideas that trouble us about the division of Sanskrit and Sanskriti come from this culture. For example, I'll give you now. The idea that Sanskrit is a broad, broad uh, language of foreign origin is very foundational in this culture. Max Miller gone over a century ago, but this culture keeps this idea alive. Really based on that. And if you challenge it and deny that Sanskrit is a foreign language, they call you a chauvinist, fascist, all kinds of names. So that's one. Another point, point that they are very sure of is that Sanskrit is an abusive language. They call it toxic, oppressive. It is oppressive of castes, oppressive of women, oppressive of minorities. So, a large part of the social oppression of Indians in India has to do with the problems of Sanskrit. And so, the study of Sanskrit uh, for looking for oppressive, oppressiveness is what he calls political philology. Philology is a way you study language, dig out you know, what the hidden means, what the author didn't say. But from the way he phrased it, what can you tease out of it? What does it really mean? What can you find out? And he calls it political philology. That this is the whole purpose of his enterprise, he says, 
Dr. Romes, the Indian civilization, and he scores other Western Sanskrit scholars who he thinks are too soft on, on Indian Sanskrit by not sufficiently attacking its toxicity. So he calls upon his followers and his colleagues to do that. So you can see that right there, the Indian left will be rallying behind him because he's entirely on their way. So this toxicity of Sanskrit is the theme that pervades, is one common theme that pervades his entire work. He then takes Parmartika and Vivarika. Parmartika is the realm of transcendence, reality, Brahman, Ishwar, higher self, Parmartika. And Vivarika is the mundane. We are having a Vivarika discussion here. Your life, your career, your family, you know, all the other things concerning your mind, body, that's all that's Vivarika word, society. And he right away argues why the Parmartika dimension of Sanskrit is not relevant and should be dismissed. Which is very serious because if somebody does that, then the whole tradition of mantra, chanting like we have nice invocation, the whole yajna, the whole philosophy, the whole meditation, all that's gone because you dismiss it. And he cites the philosophy of a 17th century Italian philosopher. And he says this Italian philosopher has argued that this, uh, this kind of, uh, there are two ways people are writing thoughts. The people who are writing worldly thoughts, uh, those are empirical. You can, you can evaluate them. Uh, you can test them. So they are real. And the things which are about domains that you can't measure, you can't really trust them. Those are fantasies. Those are myths. So he, without arguing whether this is valid or not valid, whether you can map Parmartika onto this, without even spending enough material, enough sentences, in a few sentences he concludes just by quoting a uh, Italian philosopher uh, a few centuries back. He says, therefore, the Parmartika fits that idea of otherworldly, uh, mystical uh, kind of mumbo jumbo and that's not relevant. So this is a very big problem for me. Somebody just dismisses the whole big part of the issue. And then he further says that the oral tradition of Sanskrit was basically incapable of producing new knowledge and, and thinking creatively. It was just some mantras that people were memorizing which they did not know what it means. And he calls it hymnology, mechanical chanting of sounds that you don't understand, like an iPod that people are repeating sounds. And these uh, Brahmins were doing these uh, hymnology, that was the oral tradition. And the reason these very clever Brahmins didn't want to write it down is to keep it secret so no one has to find out. Because once it's written down, somebody has to read it. So this they had a secret to keep it among themselves. And the reason they had this secret is that then they could pretend that this is something very profound and powerful. Only they have. And everybody else needs it. And therefore, make people dependent on them. And this is a source of power and oppression. So the whole tradition is 
about political power and oppression. This is what, what he says. So, besides distressing the Parmatika, he also wants to uh, <coughs> talk down and, and, and denigrate the whole polar tradition. So, he says that Sanskrit literature starts first century after Christ. That is when history of Sanskrit literature starts. So, he shifted all the dates to fit his theory. And the reason he wants to say that is because he wants to say that Sanskrit literature starts under Buddhist influence. Prior to Buddhist influence, what existed was Vedic hymns, which have no meaning of, of, of they, they just oppression, political oppression, in Mambo Jambo, you know, you hypnotize people and you just chant these. In, in other words, complete, complete uh, lack of appreciation for what Sanskrit has been for. And looking at it the way a child of Buddha, purely materialistic person, atheist person would look at. And then and the, it is the Buddhists who start writing. Because Buddhists are not prejudiced people. They are open to every level of society and like the Brahmins. So they start writing. And the Central Asian invaders, Kushan kings, who come from Central Asia after Ashoka, they start patronizing scholarship in their course that has been written. And so these Vedic Brahmins feeling left out, they also, in order to get patronage and get grants and so on from these kings, Buddhist kings, they also start writing in Sanskrit. So the Sanskrit oral tradition becomes written under pressure of Buddhists and these foreign kings who, who introduce, who, who force them to start writing it out. And this he says is when literature begins. So this is very weird, very strange. There are a large part of his, yeah, he spent 10 years out of the last 40 years of his work on interpreting Ramayana. And his edition of Ramayana is the standard edition being taught in the universities. The standard English translation being taught in the universities is, is his translation. He translated one of the main volumes out of that series of Ramayana. And he has this complicated argument to show that the king, Ram, is kind of an absolute dictator beyond any rules. And he wants to show that Raj Dharma is a system of abuse because he being divine can do anything. And he keeps giving some examples that he can do anything. He's not bound by any rules. And that this divine king, autocrat, <coughs> dictator mentality is what all the new rajas start behaving like. This is a role model for new rajas. And he says that Ramayana's demonizing of Ravana is a device that can then be used to demonize Muslims. And he says that Ramayana was not a major public discourse or a public, uh, there was no big cult of Ram as he says prior to the invasion of Turks in the 12th century. So only when the Turks come as invaders in the 12th century and the Hindu kings need to unite and uh, mobilize the public against them, they need a story. So they use Ramayana Ramay as a story in which they become, the Hindu kings become the divine king Ram and these Muslim invaders become the 
Rav. So this is when how and he said he, he correctly says that before the twelfth century there were no big temples to Rav, there were no big uh, inscriptions or carvings and there was no Ram Lila, those kind of things he says. So which of course is not true because I, I, when I argue back I give a lot of archaeological evidence to the contrary. So this formula that Ramayan gives a formula for a king to be made divine by doing some yajnas, which is like black magic, he says. So the Brahmin comes and he is in collusion with the king. The Brahmin's power comes from the fact that only he can do this ritual. And the king gets the power after the ritual is done because he becomes divine. And therefore he becomes an absolute power king. So this is a good team, the teamwork between the Raja and the Brahmin. These two together have a conspiracy. And this spread across much of Asia. All these Cambodia, Thailand, you know, Vietnam, uh, all these kind of countries also become part of this. Because the it's like a franchise, if you will. The Brahmin goes to every king and he says, I can do the ritual magic and you become divine. People will then bow to you, you will have absolute power. And of course king loves it, gives his patronage, sponsors him. And this is how he keeps spreading. Now, he doesn't show a proof of it, but this is his theory. And he's very convinced. So this he calls the cosmopolis, the Sanskrit cosmopolis, which is a, for thousand years, over much of Asia, Sanskrit is the dominant language. But there is no army which has gone and invaded anybody, he, he says. Therefore, the spread of Sanskrit is not like the spread of Black or Greek or those languages which spread to war, to conquest. Sanskrit was not spread through military conquest. It was spread through this mechanism of doing a ritual which would make the king absolute power and in exchange he would adopt Sanskrit and patronize the Brahmins. So it spread in this type of manner. So it's sort of a virus, you know, that kind of spreads in a very uh, sinister way. So this is his theory of the Sanskrit cosmopolis. And then he written a very uh, important paper in his work, Death of Sanskrit. The Death of Sanskrit is his theory on why Sanskrit died. It died because it was toxic, it was abusive, it had to die, it cannot go on forever. It died before the British came, it is not their fault. And it died before the Islamic invasion, it is not their fault. Sanskrit was already dead before the, uh, the Turkish invasion because the Hindu kings killed it. It is the Hindu kings who killed Sanskrit before the Islamic invasion. And in fact, some of the Muslim kings tried to revive it, but the Hindus do not cooperate. This is all written down in his, his works. So, then he has a paper called Deep Orientalism, in which he argues that the, the, the ideas of hatred and abusing and oppressing other people, which are built into Sanskrit, were the reason the Nazis Holocaust the Jews because the Germans who, who learned theology picked up these ideas of toxicity from Sanskrit and they, uh, they taught these ideas to Hitler and, uh, and the Nazis. So the blame for Holocaust can go back and be traced on Sanskrit because Sanskrit is the one that contained this uh, kind of potential for uh, Sanskrit is sort of like a weapon of mass destruction, if you will, WMD, you know. 
So uh, this is the whole table called decodation. That's the table. Now uh, this goes on, and uh, his works are a few thousand pages. Nobody from our tradition has critiqued him. Nobody. They keep giving him awards, and they keep praising him. And when I stand up and point these out, they thought they thought I'm I'm attacked publicly by people because I'm the only voice standing up and saying all this. And all I'm doing is calling for a debate, calling for a discussion. And it's very difficult because he's got a lot of money people behind him. Now, he also believes that the future link language is not going to be Sanskrit, it should not be Sanskrit because it's dead. And it dead in the 12th century, it's dead for like a thousand years now. The future link language should be English, he's very clear on that. So his Greek agenda is to replace Sanskrit to English as the link language of Indians. And he wants that whatever whatever literature was produced in Sanskrit should be translated into English. People should read all these texts in English. There is no point in reading Ramayana in Sanskrit or any any text in Sanskrit to read in English, that is what should be done. Sanskrit can just decide. So so the death of Sanskrit and the turning Sanskrit into a museum art, artifact which some scholars like him study. So his idea of Sanskrit studies is to do this. It is not to revive living Sanskrit or spoken Sanskrit or Sanskrit as a means of knowledge production. But the idea of Sanskrit studies is to study the toxicity in Sanskrit, abusiveness in Sanskrit, and teach it to Dalits so they can understand how it has been abused. And he has a project called the Ambedkar Studies, Ambedkar Project in Columbia University, where he brings Dalit separatist type of intellectuals from JNU and other kind of leftist politics in India and he gives them Sanskrit knowledge so they can come back to India and become very strong in fighting, you know. So there is all that uh, divisiveness going on as a result of this, uh, this influence. Now, besides the Padamshiri, which is not a simple thing for order to get, Narayan uh, Murthy of Infosys funds him in a very big way. I know that Majority of you end up getting jobs in Infosys. And I'm not criticizing uh, Infosys. It's not about Infosys. But what I'm doing is got a right to spend his money how he wants. I'm not saying he should not. I'm not, uh, I've got a right to tell him what to do with his money. It's his money. And he can spend it how he wants. But uh, I have also a right to be critical of the effect it's having. The Narayan uh, Murthy has given him a huge million dollars to be the editor in chief of the Murthy Classics Library. Okay. So the Murthy Classics Library wants to translate 500, uh, 500 volumes of Indian old classical Indian literature from various languages into English and uh, make it inexpensively available for very little money, you know, paperbacks at radio stations and schools and, and they've got uh, appointed, they've been appointed by uh, our, new, our HRD minister the uh, Board of Education uh, you know, on, on these committees to shape the future education of India. So this uh, Sheldon Pollock-led team of translators who interpret Indian texts, old Indian texts, into English works will be then spread across India because they have so much money to do this. Harvard University Press is lending its prestige, they will publish it, but they will sold real cheap and spread across all of India. So the next generation will get even more colonized, much more colonized than we have been in the past. 
much more colonized than the British ever did. Because these people got money, these people are Indians. It's not some uh, you know, white people from the West doing it, it is now our fellow Indians doing it, and it is seen as, gee, this must be very good for us. And so, unlike all the previous Western scholars that I have critiqued, who, uh, who I find problematic, this is the first one who's actually doing it with Indian money. See? So, this is making it more difficult. And not only the previous government, but the new HRD people are appointing them because they have money, they, can, they, they have power, they have club. So, the Murthy classics, uh, the editorial board, led by Sheldon Pollock, is consisting of Western scholars. Okay. And most of the translations are, I think, the first five volumes that they have translated, four of them are done by non Indians translators, whose mother tongue is not what they have used, what they translate, but who are, who know the language in a foreign, foreign language, like the mother tongue is something in the West. And the fifth one, one I have two translators, one is in Indian, one is in non-Indian. So, uh, so, majority of the work and the leadership and the vision and the strategy and the interpretation is being done by outsiders. So therefore, it is an organization of the systems. That is what I am calling it that. And when you have people like that, I know people in their money, and when you have the government, the previous one and the new ones endorsing these people, uh, it is a pretty powerful combination for one individual guy like me to try and fight. Okay. So, when my next book comes out, I'm uh, looking for trouble. I, I, I know that. Uh, but I think I have to do this to get people to level the playing field, to get our, the people on our tradition side aware of this. Now, the Padam Shiri and the Murthy backing is not all there is. The Shingeri Math, Adi Shankara's first Matha in Shingeri, has been approached by Pollock people and they have written, they have blessed, they have agreed in principle that the Shingeri Math, Adi Shankara Shingeri Math, will create chairs in USA under Sheldon Pollock. He will appoint his students and reselect the people. They will be appointed in, in Columbia University will be the first chair and they will have chairs in other universities. And this will be the foreign pitam of Hungary, if you will. The Lumbay University will become, will control the foreign pitams of Hungary. Now this is ridiculous if you think about it. Why would you do that? Even under Mughal rule, they could not take over Hungary. Even under British rule, they could not take over Hungary. Now the Americans are very smart, because rather than taking it over directly, they got the Indians to do this work for them. So, I was in the middle of writing a different book uh, last year. By summertime, I finished 75% of it. And I wanted to finish that. I told my publisher that's the hope. My publisher is Martha Collins, I give him the dates. Then suddenly something happened, and I put that book aside to start writing this book for a What happened is, I was told that $4 million had been raised by some wealthy allies. Uh, who are going to create a chair at Columbia University on Adi uh, Shankara philosophy, Sanskrit philosophy, and it will be chaired by the, lead, the selection committee, which is led by Sheldon Pollock, and so he will put the right people that he selects to do this work. 
And I was so surprised. I had meetings with these people. They are investment banker type people. I am not criticizing investment bankers. But these particular individuals were more interested in, uh, you know, they impressed Columbia University by doing this. Uh, they will be having good connections. It will be good for their business. Their prestige will go up. You know, because one of the things, one of the ways that a rich person can buy influence in America is to get into a prestigious university, you allow a chair, and you are associated with that chair. So you join the high table, the high class, you know, you both you upgrade yourself in terms of in terms of stature, in terms of uh, connections, networking, and so on. So these people are selfish people. These people are not philosophers. These people have never read German politics. They just know this is a very prestigious thing, we will give our money and we do it. Indians are so much into show and appearances and you know, being in the good books of Westerners and being able to show off that I am associated with this. None of them had actually read his one. So I asked them, have you read his one? And they said, we don't need to because he's well known. I said, look, you're investment bankers. Would you, would you invest millions of dollars on an infrastructure project, project that where it never did the due diligence? Would you, risk, uh, would you invest in an airline or a hotel or some industry uh, without doing due diligence? And they were just, they, 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 we have to do due diligence because that is what they are taught. So I said, why haven't you done due diligence on Sheldon Pollock's work? And if you are not qualified to do it, get a team of independent people to do it. I am doing it. At least signatures. So, but they were very angry at me because I was spoiling it. And then I was even further surprised when people who are running the Hungarian Mutt branch in USA, they kept it, Canada and USA, were so convinced of this. They thought, they thought at the last minute I would be interfering when I thought I am giving the information. And they were all talking about, you know, uh, as if their loyalty is to the quality rather than their loyalty to addition crowd. So I decided I'm going to meet the Shakrachari. So I wrote some letters and I gave a little summary of some of the main issues I just told you. That is got these, these views. I quoted some of them and I sent it to somebody to Shakrachari. It was intercepted. Shakrachari didn't get it. A copy of it was sent back to Pollock that this guy is doing this. So I was told by the Pollock team in US, we know what you are doing. We, whenever you send a letter, we get a copy of it. So it was so interesting that it means that even in the Shakrachari Mutt, and Kingari Mutt, they got updated. They even told me that the administrative head of the Kingari Mutt is on the committee at Columbia University. They brought him to do it. They flown into the US several times. And he's part of this, he's also done it. So when I met him, this gentleman, he says that Indians have, have failed to produce good scholarship on Sanskrit. We should be very grateful to people like Pollock who are doing this work. We do not have that kind of talent. And so if, if these Americans are doing it, they're doing us a favor. That's the Americanization of Sanskrit studies. People at very high position in the community might also believe it. So I wanted to have a meeting. So I, uh, luckily for me, uh, a lady in Chicago, 
school father that I worked for 15 years or so, she found out that I'm concerned about these things, so she called me, and she said, I can set up a meeting. Because her father, late father, used to be in the Shingeli Mart, very close to the chapter time. So she set up a personal meeting. And this meeting was set up. I went there last year, late last year. And when I went there, I found out very interesting how they set up this confidential meeting by passing the official channel. Because Western China's real brother is his private sister, and his house is right next So he, through him, the meeting was set So I, would, I went and met his brother, and brother said, You don't go to this place because then they'll know who you are. We take you to the side door and you will be having a private very impressed, very happy. When I went for the private meeting, I was sitting at the time. But this gentleman who was intercepted was sitting like this. He found out anything. He found out. So this is how tight the thing is around Shankaracharya. So when I told the Shankaracharya all my points, we had never heard this type. We had not heard this type of story. He was told that we are funding something or we are putting up a chair that has to our eyes and it will be great for us. And I offered, I offered all the points I said, you take it scantily. Because look at what they are writing. They are writing things which are very critical and insulting of Radhi Shankar in some places. And to give them the authority, give them the adhikar to be the future voice of your your heart is, is going to create a huge step. And so, uh, so I said, I don't want you to accept at my, what I'm saying at face value. Give me some time, let my book come out, and then let me take debate. This is the Arish, and I said, this is the Arish Antra method that you have debate with the opponents. There is nothing wrong with challenging an opponent. He challenged the mighty Buddhists and the Mimamsaka people as uh, a young man, and uh, that is your tradition. So I'm challenging these mighty people, and I should be given the same. Uh, right to debate and when our book comes out you can moderate, one of your scholars can moderate and just have a debate. And then you can decide whether they are right or whether I am right. Now I don't know whether they are going to proceed or not. I did not tell you. But the original date for launching that chair, public big public event, was set was meant to happen October 15 and it hasn't happened. So it is possible that they have Second thoughts, it is possible that they put it on hold, it is possible that they are waiting for a book, I do not know. But there is going to be a huge war. There is going to be a huge war. Uh, because I do not watch a one side view without challenging by the other side to take control of the whole, whole discourse of suspect for now onwards. It is such a big deal for us. And you think that people in government will be concerned, the martyrs will be concerned. Uh, the religious groups will be concerned, the scholars will be concerned, but I did not find that in the case. Now, I started work looking for my knowledge is not enough in all the dimensions that he is talking about. So I need experts. I need experts on Ramayana, I need experts on this, experts on that, I need experts so that I can, uh, in my response, I have got help. Whenever I went to I've gone to many people for help in, in the last eight, nine, six, seven months. And I'm disappointed. Because most of the people, 
know something very in a very narrow way. But they can't even read properly what Bordock has written and understand it and come up with a counter argument. Because he's got so much data, data, data all over. They're just very confused. They don't even know what he's saying. So the result of this is that nobody, nobody on our side has even read him properly, don't even understand. But things are changing for the better as a result of this trip. I gave this very talk, Delhi University Sanskrit Park. They have a distinguished lecture series. I was asked to give that distinguished lecture this year. And an audience, huge audience in the Delhi University Sanskrit Department were there. And I told them all of this. They are very interested in joining and helping me. And we are going to form, we are going to create some seminars. We are going to, uh, maybe by this summer, we are going to have some conference and I'd like your help and I'd like you to find other scholars so we can start people are now willing to come up with counter discourse, come up with critical analysis. And, and, and a, I must say to the credit of uh, Professor Bhardwaj, Chair of the Delhi University Sanskrit Department, he gave a press interview uh, which came in the Hindi paper and some English paper also about his concerns about Sheldon Pollock as a result of our meetings in my talk. So he's on our side. And I've had a very successful meeting with Krishna uh, Shastriji uh, of Sanskrit Bharati. He's on our side. He understands this very serious matter. Uh, and this is one of my main reasons for coming here to alert as many people as are willing to listen. Uh, and I am going uh, to Goa and Sanskrit Talk Conference. Again, I am going because I want wherever I can get an audience with Sanskrit people. Then there is a World Sanskrit Congress in Thailand around July 1. I am going for that. I will give a keynote address. Again, I thought probably and his people will be there too. But I want to put it out in the open that these are certain positions which are troubling people like me who are on the inside of the tradition. And we want that uh, rather than all this going on and on for years and spreading and with money coming in on that wavelength, we want a discussion. So let's see what happens, but we certainly will start a fight. And then, you know, in the next few months, I'll have my book out, which will put all these facts, the proper quotes, references, arguments, counter-arguments out. And I'm hoping that a university like this will uh, create some kind of discussion on that book. So we can uh, uh, we can popularize our view. We don't have the the Rhine machinery. We don't have the, uh, the media. The media on our side they are interested in what we are doing. As far as they're concerned, uh, it's a dead language. It's a saccharinizing language. And you know, dead or dying, so much the better. They are interested. It's our job to stand up and defend it. So I'll. Uh, uh, I, I, before I conclude, I just want to give you a, a positive possibility. My foundation used to be a lot of grants when we had lot more money, used to be many more grants. Uh, and one project is relevant to this. One project was that uh, a very bright Indian scholar uh, who is a traditional Sanskrit scholar also a practitioner of our culture and tradition and uh, has his own uh, you know, sadhana and practices 
these medications <coughs> the philosopher. At the same time, he has a PhD in Western philosophy from Oxford. So he knows both. So project was done where he translated the main Western philosophers into Sanskrit. So he reverse translated. Instead of translating Sanskrit into English, he translated the English works, German works, French works of the top philosophers, Western philosophers. He wrote summaries of their point of view in Sanskrit books. Okay. So this is something we should have been doing all the thousand years, understanding them in our own language. And then he went to Blaisandu University, did a summer institute, and one in Tirupati, Sanskrit University. And he took the bright Sanskrit young scholars, and he would he would play the role of the Westerner, and he would present the theory, ask them to respond, and then he would present a new argument. They were, they were supposed to represent the Indian side and answer back from Indian thought and he would represent the Western thought debate. And the idea was to use this traditional system of debate and educate our people about how to talk back to the Western thought. And he came and he, in his report, he said he was so impressed. He said these young pundits and acharyas trained in the traditional Sanskrit are so sharp, so analytical, so philosophical that every single Western thought he presented to them, they could get it and give it an answer. They could quickly give an answer. And, he, and so I was very excited. I said, you know, we should start training our own Sanskrit people to talk back in our own language. So this guy said, okay, we will, he is doing the training. So he got a job offer to be uh, Vice Chancellor of uh, Sanskrit University Tirupati. And we were excited that he worked and we will train the brightest, best, promising young Sanskrit scholars from all over India. We will have these workshops and we will train them in Western thought so they can answer back properly, accurately what their thinking is and then they will respond and they will learn how to debate. And then this way the next generation of Acharyas will be very wise, very good at and then we will teach the public better. Now this gentleman, very good friend of mine, uh, Bengali, I love Bengali, there's no nothing about Bengali's per se, that my problem is. But he contacted a fellow Bengali that would give him advice. And this uh, big brother fellow Bengali is Ashish Nandi in Delhi, who's very that kind of person. Uh, he asked him, you know, I'm getting this career choice. Rajiv thinks I should go. Infinity Foundation will back me. What do you think? And Ajit Nandi in a couple of phone calls talked him out of it. Talked him out of it. He said, if you go, you'll be tainted chaperon. You'll ruin your career. You'll be considered uh, one of those, you know, uh, bad guys, chauvinists, nationalists, all these things. Don't go for your career. Please stay there, be happy. So our project didn't happen because it depended on a brilliant guy who was one of a kind this unique kind of combination we never did. And I really wish we had succeeded because had we succeeded, we would have undertaken a large number of young scholars in Sanskrit to be debated. So people like Chandra Pollock would be facing a huge army of our people, but it didn't happen. I just leave that with you the thought of how we could do it, but what is the right way to do it. Rather than translating our knowledge into English, 
वी शुड बी ट्रांसलेटिंग वेस्टर्न नॉलेज इन संस्कृत वेस्टर्न नॉलेज इन आवर वर्नैक्यूलर सो दैट पीपल हु आर ट्राइंग टू परसू द स्टडीज इन आवर ओन टर्म्स यू नो आर एबल टू डू सो ना यू आर टेक पीपल एंड नो दैट माइक्रोसॉफ्ट इज वर्ल्ड एंड ऑल दीज थिंग्स आर अवेलेबल इन इंडियन लैंग्वेज बट नॉट कंप्लीटली नॉट क्वाइट यू कैन the content of a word file or excel file can be in the indian font but the commands are in english open close save delete those commands are in english however when you look at the mandarin then mandarin version of microsoft office the commands are also in mandarin you do not need to know a word of english to use the product but in india you have to be tech savvy Get a job, and to be tech savvy, you have to have some vocabulary in order to be able to use the product. So we have not turned the new technology, the new thought, into our vernacular, so that people don't have to learn English just for the sake of being a tech savvy person. We have not done medical education, modern modern medical education in traditional language. We have not done so many things uh, without a person having to learn English. There are many people who are learning English, and the English is not good enough. Somebody else is better. He has to always have an inferiority complex. He has to always try to learn better and better. So this uh, this kind of anglicizing our education, uh, even the study of Sanskrit, is done through English. It's through English study. The through English. Better at the English philosophy, the English interpretation, the English vocabulary. We study this aspect. So when we say somebody is reviving Sanskrit, it is not necessarily the kind of Sanskrit revival you would want. It is more like a, a dead language being used for their own purposes and killed, put in a museum, and and that is that is really what uh, the current situation. so i hope to have stirred up enough uh, controversy and i look forward to your questions thank you for listening